Isaiah chapter 40, really verse 1 through 11, uh, is our text in this second Sunday of Advent. Uh, just go ahead and need to say this right off the bat. In Luke chapter 3, don't go there, don't go there. You can mark it down. These notes are available for you online. Luke chapter 3 verse 1 to 6 tells us that John the Baptist's preaching is this voice crying out that Isaiah 40 is speaking about. And Luke 3, 1 to 6 tells us that all of the things that John the Baptist is speaking about are fulfilled in Jesus. So what's happening in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 to 11... Is Isaiah in, in this moment of the Holy Spirit inspiring his writing and looking forward for the people of God in exile. He's looking forward to the day that God would rescue his people. And so Isaiah isn't speaking necessarily to political Israel. He's speaking to us. And he's speaking to the people of God that in spite of the circumstance you find yourself in now. Because in chapter 39, we've got to go back some time. Because God is speaking to Hezekiah and letting him know that this Babylonian envoy that you have foolishly showed everything you have is going to come and they're going to conquer you. And then chapter 40 begins a new phase in Isaiah where Isaiah looks forward prophetically to... A time past when this Babylonian nation comes and conquers them. And so a great amount of time has skipped forward. And so Isaiah is looking forward to bring comfort to his people. That the difficulty you're in now. Particularly the difficulty of sin and slavery to sin. And corruption due to the fall in Genesis 3. God is going to rescue you. So that's where we're going. Pay attention. Pay attention. And there's no way we can do this just in the short time we have on Sunday mornings. This is, you know, as an educator and as a guy who used to teach this stuff at some of this stuff at the college level, this is an entire course, okay? This is a semester length course, so we can't do it in 45 minutes. And some of you are going, no, I was here last week, it was 50. So can't do it in this short amount of time, but I want you to pay attention. And I think this is important because it's just, for me this week, just recognizing that when we stand up here and teach, I should really never give you anything you can't glean from the text itself. There's all kinds of deep study to do. I'm, I believe in that. And there's, there's other resources to read. But I really do believe as a Reformed Protestant that Scripture alone is sufficient. And if you read this sucker enough, you'll start to draw these lines from, from, the, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, back and forth. And so I want you to pay attention how inspired New Testament authors use or preach from Old Testament texts. This is key in our Bible study. It's key in our evangelism. Because the New Testament... Authors are preaching from these texts, Luke 3, 1 to 6. John is preaching from this text, and Luke is recording his preaching from this text. And it helps us to learn how to interpret these texts. Because the license they take in interpreting is the license we take in interpreting. We don't read things on top of them. We just simply apply them or interpret them the way they did and apply them to our context. It's really not rocket science. I see this is done all over the world by people who don't have advanced Bible degrees. They just have a Bible. And in some cases, they don't have a whole Bible. They got a couple of chapters of a couple of New Testament books. And it's crazy what they get done with a couple of chapters of Philippians. Okay? And so just pay attention how the New Testament writers interpret and preach Old Testament text. And we'll find a myriad of application that we can do. Again, this text isn't merely for national Israel. This word, this scripture, this preaching is for the faithful exile, what the some scholars will call the remnant, those people who have been faithful and they have remained faithful to the Lord and they're in the minority. These elect people of God who believe by faith and they're waiting for the promise to come. There's a few things that should happen to us as we do this through the Advent season because we're studying New Testament passages, you should be reading those, studying those in your 
studying with us in here on Sunday mornings, these passages from Isaiah, we should gain some insight through these passages into what Jesus has done for us. Because remember, John is the voice crying. And Jesus is the one that John is speaking about. So when we interpret these and read these, there's insight into what Jesus has done for us. And we'll see some of that this morning. We should get some ideas on how to respond during the Christmas season. There's a response to make on our part. God has been gracious and revealed Himself in the marvelous things. And there is a response on our part that's not just had on Sunday mornings, but throughout our weeks. We should grow in faith that God does what He says. We should also get a little better reading, a little better at reading the Old Testament and hitching our New Testament firmly up to the Old Testament as we see the gospel deeper and more facets and more glorious in these passages in the Old Testament. Because it's not absent. It is the text from which the New Testament preaches the gospel. And as we grow in that, that helps everything. It helps everything. The most applicable stories, narratives to our world today are found in the Old Testament. If it's base and ugly and wrong and broken and God redeemed it, you can find it in the Old Testament. And it is full of the narrative of how Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, has been engaging His world from creation on. No better place to get some real world, real life examples of how Jesus fixes broken things and right there in the text and see the gospel applied. Hopefully we'll see that this morning. A little technical component for how Isaiah fits together this morning. Chapters 1 to 39 are the prophet's message to his own generation confronting sin. So Isaiah is speaking to his contemporaries confronting sinful issues. Chapters 40 to 55 are going to shift now to a Holy Spirit-driven, Holy Spirit-inspired prophetic foresight Regarding Judah, the southern kingdom, in the Babylonian captivity and exile. And God is going to, through Isaiah the prophet, speak comfort to them. This is a dark time for you, and there's comfort for you. And by the way, by the way, side note. What God does in them historically and nationally is always a microscopic reflection of the larger story of the gospel. That they're in captivity due to sin and they're exiled from the presence of God. Can you make some connections? That we as individuals because of sin have been exiled away from the garden, away from Eden. And we are separated from God. But what does God do for them nationally? He's gracious and kind and comforts and reaches and saves and redeems. Because what God does in history, He's doing in us individually, spiritually, right? And He comes to dwell among us and we see His glory and He's sinless and He's perfect. And He goes to the cross and He dies in our place for our sin. He's buried and He rises and provides salvation. Salvation for all those who repent and believe. So what God does microscopically in history, He's doing in the overall narrative of the gospel, which is the story of God in all the universe. Right? right? That's, that, that's the discipline called biblical theology, is how God is working in all of this stuff recorded in Scripture to show us Jesus. So in chapters 40 to 55, He's going to shift to this prophetic foresight of how God is going to comfort His people. And then chapters 56 to 66 or a prophetic encouragement, maybe, you could say. Maybe exhortation to make application of the truths of chapter 1 to 55 to their time and place. Hey guys, all this stuff I taught you in chapters 1 to 55, do something with it now. Apply it. And the message goes for us too. If you're reading the book of Isaiah, when you get to chapters 56 to 66, it's full of application, including one of my favorites, and that is the kingdom of God, the new heaven and the new earth, that what God is doing in our souls, He's doing in the world around us and restoring and redeeming all things. So therefore, He's saying to them, says to us, get to work. Don't hide, don't isolate. And so anyway, that's a breakdown of how to go about 
and read Isaiah. So let's come to our passage today, now that hopefully we've set it in its proper context, and you have a framework off of which we can come to it. Let's make our observations, uh, and we're really just going to go down through verse 11, and then we'll make some application, okay? Observation number one, and it's going to be in verse one and two, there's comfort for God's people, and the reason, because sin has been atoned for. There's comfort for God's people because sin has been atoned for. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 to 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Well, why might he need to comfort them? Because if you go back to chapter 39, Hezekiah has been restored. He's been healed. And he's feeling good, feeling his oats. And this envoy from Babylon comes to him and he shows them everything. And Isaiah sends to Hezekiah and says, Hey, what'd you show these people? Everything. And Isaiah's like, Oh my gosh, everything then is going to be theirs. They're coming. This was a spy mission. And they're going to come and take everything. And Hezekiah's unholy response is absolutely devastating. It's basically, well, as long as it doesn't happen in my lifetime. And you're like, oh my gosh. And he was one of their better kings. Right? And so Isaiah now shifting forward to after these Babylonians have come and conquered them. Killed many. Destroyed the city. Taken many back into captivity. Isaiah looks forward and he says, comfort, comfort my people. Says our God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and say to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Just an FYI. The guilty, many are killed in this Babylonian invasion. But the remnant, the holy, the faithful also suffer too. Once again, there's no such thing as sin that's isolated just to the sinner. All sin is corporate. If I sin and I keep it hidden, it affects you spiritually. It affects the environment. It affects the air. Sin is viral. And so the innocent suffer along with the guilty. And because that's the case, God speaks to his people and he speaks comfort to them. And he says to them, he speaks to this prophet who's going to speak. He says, I want you to say to them and say it tenderly that her warfare is ended. That her iniquity is pardoned. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. They'd suffered the consequence of their rebellion. As a matter of fact, the language here, double for all her sins. Double doesn't quite do justice to the word. I'm going to take you down into a Hebrew lesson. But basically, the word has the idea of folding over onto equal pieces. It's kind of hard to translate that into English. Because if you just say, the, uh, she has received from the Lord... The Lord's hand of folding over. And so we translate it double. And the whole idea is that the consequence matches what has happened. In other words, sin always has effects. There's no such thing, by the way, just side note. This, I have too many side notes. And you're like, that's why it takes you an hour to preach or 50 minutes. I can't help it. Because we're in Christ, right? Because we're in Christ, we never receive the eternal punishment for our sin. We are secure in Christ. But God doesn't take away from us the consequences of folly. One of the great teachers of discipleship is consequence. And the good news about God allowing us to have consequences for our bad decisions, it reminds us that, boy, I'm glad that He doesn't give me what I deserve but he certainly is going to let me have the result of my folly. And so he's reminding them here that your iniquities pardoned, but you have received from my hand the consequence of your action. So they've suffered the consequences of rebellion. But he says here that their iniquity, their dirtiness, their uncleanness has been pardoned. It's been dealt with. That's absolutely positively rich. Why should they be comforted? Because their sin's been paid for. Their sin has been atoned for. Now you should ask this question. How in the world did their sin get paid for? The same way you read in 2 Chronicles chapter 30. When Hezekiah discovers the law. And they hadn't been keeping the Passover. And he sends messengers to the kingdom. And he says, bring the people, bring, come, and come and bring what the Lord requires. Here's what the Word says. Here's what the Scriptures teach. We haven't been doing this. We didn't know. Now we know. Let's obey it. 
And you read in that passage that many people come, but they come unclean in disobedience to the law because they didn't know. And Hezekiah prays and he says, May the good Lord pardon all those whose hearts are set on him. And what does the scripture say? The Lord pardoned their sin. Although they were not clean according to the law. How did these people get their sin pardoned? The same way they got their sin pardoned is God pardoned them. But you should note that there was no penalty paid for their sin. How can God pardon sin where there's been no penalty paid? I don't have time to preach this. I just put it in your notes. It's Romans 3, 21 to 26. You see, when you read that passage, you'll discover that God being gracious passed over sins previously committed. Why? Because His plan was that in the fullness of time, the eternal Son of God, Jesus, would come and He would die as the covering for their sin. And God knowing who those people are, His faithful passed over their sin because Jesus' sacrifice was as good as done. Which gets us on down to verse 6 and 7 that what God promises, He keeps. And He promised all the way back in Genesis 3 that there would come a day where He would crush the enemy. That Christ would come and He would take care of that sin debt. And so what happens here? Those faithful believe and they trust and they refuse to disobey and God pardons their sin. So they're sitting in exile and they've suffered consequence. Many of them have sinned. They did not do. And God says, comfort them. Speak tenderly to them. Your sin's pardoned. Wiped out. Why? Because God is going to send Jesus to pardon that sin through His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. God counts their sin paid for because they've repented and believed. By the way, that's how God has always paid for sin. There's never been a time God didn't deal with sin according to repentance and faith. Repentance and faith is how He has always dealt with sin. Because He's going to pay for the sin of those who will repent and believe. So observation number two. God's promise is that he will come and save his people and all will see it. God's promise is that he's going to come and save his people and all are going to see it. Isaiah 40 verse 3 to 5, a voice cries. This is John the Baptist. This is particularly verse 3 to 5 is where John is preaching from in Luke's narrative. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God's promise is he's going to come and save his people and all flesh will see it. There's two images here. And one of the images is that of a king having his highway prepared before he goes and takes a country. The next image is that of the Exodus, in which God brings them out and prepares the way before them. Both of them being images of a king that comes to save. Which is why John preaches from this passage regarding Jesus. Because Jesus isn't just a sweet guy who is meek and mild. He is that. But he is God and he is king. And he is the one Isaiah spoke about who brought his people out of captivity physically, nationally. But he is the king also who is going to come and rescue his people from the bondage of their sins. And so therefore the promise is that God himself is going to take care of it. And then every eye is going to see it. This isn't going to be hidden in a corner. The end is that all nations will see and know. Which is another reason Jesus comes along and he's not making stuff up in the great commission. Jesus didn't rise and think, oh wow, this worked out in our favor. Didn't know that. Why don't we franchise this and take it global? 
Because Jesus is the one who told Abraham, through you, I will bless the nations. Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, is the one inspiring these texts that talk about every eye is going to see. The intent is, I'm going to save my people. It's going to be a global work, and I'm going to make sure the nations know. And so God promises that He will come and save His people. He's going to make a way for them. He's going to make it happen. Notice this this imagery, the king making a way for himself to enter into a city. Valleys being filled and mountains being knocked down. The, the application to that for us, and this isn't going to be in your applications later on, so it'll make it for you now, is this, that God goes before His people and He makes a way for His name to be spread among nations. This is why we have no fear of engaging the world. It's because He has gone before. He makes valleys get filled up and mountains get knocked down because He intends for His name to go global. Which is why what we just asked for is as sure as done. Jesus said, when you ask me for my kingdom, I'm going to do it. So guess what? You don't have to wonder whether or not those passports are going to get granted and visas granted and people get to the right place at the right time because Jesus is going to iron it out. Which is why John comes preaching this message from Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 to 5. Jesus is that king. He's going to knock down mountains, raise up hills. He's going to save you. He's going to rescue you. And the world will see it. And that should cause a little bit of hope to rise. That should cause a little bit of joy to rise. That I'm not on this mission in vain. Observation number three. God's promise is certain. It's certain. Verse six and eight. Verse 6 through 8. Now we know this passage, hopefully. Because we know this in regard to the scriptures. I'll read it and you'll recognize it. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades... But the word of our God will stand forever. Hezekiah, what I told you is going to come about. It's going to happen. You're like grass, Hezekiah. You have a short season. You're going to rise. You're going to go down. There are going to be kings after you that rise and go down. But what I said comes about. This is what we refer to as the decrees of God. When God decrees, it's certain. And therefore, we learn in this passage, God's promise is certain. His people's sin will be pardoned. He will make a way for them. He will save them. And the world will see it. It's certain. It's certain. This is the thing that blows my absolute mind about the church in the West. Is we don't act like the glory of God locally and globally is a certainty. We act with fear and trepidation or, or, or we act with, with internal consumption as opposed to this sure reality that the kingdom of God is going to advance because the word of God stands forever. It, it's a foregone conclusion. There's, the world is full of unsure investments of time and resource. As a matter of fact, the world is full of unsure investments of time and resource that are temporal. And the majority of most of what the Western church invests in are thing, things that consume time and resources and have no end at all. Other than my immediate consumption of spiritual goods. But when the scriptures tell us that the surety of God to save his people and make a way for that salvation to go. And the surety that it will get done and that the nations will know. That's an investment that will come back a million fold. Why not invest? Because we don't believe. Or perhaps maybe we're more concerned about friends. Or we're more concerned about what's popular. Or going to the right thing. Or being among the right people according to what my cultural intake is. 
And we're told here that God's word is certain. Listen, Three Rivers Church, no investment we've made in those hard places will ever fail to come back. Those of you who are preparing to go, we've sent people all over the world. We've wrestled through how do we focus on that UPG and how do we mobilize people that God's calling to not that UPG. And we don't know the answer to that question other than the local fellowship is the agency. It's the M-sending agency. It's the vehicle by which the kingdom is to go forward. Not another nonprofit, not another agency. It's the local church. And its mission is God's glory globally. Anything else is fluff. It goes away. It's the flowers and the grass. But the word of God stands forever. And so therefore, these things are worth investing in. Three Rivers Church, do you think it's worth investing in South Rome for the salvation of not just individuals, but ethnic groups? You think it's worth the salvation of the family unit? You think it's worth the state of Georgia seeing the glory of God in a local church that's insignificant? You bet. You bet. So bring your present money next week. Does that make sense? That's an investment that will come back on you in the eternal kingdom. Jesus said this stuff. Do not invest in things where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up your treasure in heaven where those things don't ruin things. For where your treasure is, there your heart is. No better money spent than South Rome and the nations. Isn't that awesome? A sure fire return on investment. But maybe not here. But maybe not here. You know, can I just say, can I just say this? Do you know there's a real possibility that... Christian nonprofits in the West could lose their nonprofit status. There are bills before Congress on that now. Do you guys aware of that? There, the ERLC has a great, great article written on that right now. Go look it up. You know what I find fascinating? What will happen to the income of local churches when it's no longer tax deductible? I wonder how much money we give because we get something back from the government. Jesus said, my people invest in my kingdom, not in the kingdoms of this world. You know what I'm saying? And so, the return on investment here, it's gold. My word stands forever. I will go before you, I'll save you, I'll make a way, and the world will see it. I'm telling you something. If Jesus really is God, and his kingdom really is the kingdom, then I don't know about you, but that might be where I want to get. There are myriads of applications to this. And we don't have a ton of time. That's observation number three. Do observation number four, then we'll get to application. Observation number four. God's promise is to then be proclaimed by his people. So he says now to these people, Go up on a high mountain of Zion, herald of good news. And when you read Zion... In your Old Testament, you, two things you need to think about. One, the city of Jerusalem. But it's also used to describe a heavenly people. It's used multiple ways, but particularly a city, namely Jerusalem, but then the spiritual city people, the faithful. Okay? And, and, and listen, again, that's a whole class. That's a semester class. You just, you just gotta read, pay attention, notice when they say Zion's like, I don't think he's talking about a city there, cause now he mentions people. And when he does that, you're like, oh, cause Zion means people. Right? It's just a reading skill. Right? But when he talks about Zion and he says Jerusalem, you know, oh, Zion the city. So he uses it in a few ways. In this instance, he's telling Zion to get up on a mountain. Cities don't get up on mountains unless the city's on a mountain. Right? You tracking with me? So just applying reading logic and skill. Right? So Zion here is not so much referencing the city, which is already on a mountain. He's telling the people, get up on a high mountain. And then he defines them. Herald, not heralds. So this is a corporate people. 
It's a corporate people. So corporate people, Zion, my people, get up on this high mountain and he calls them a herald. Together they are one herald. Not many heralds. Together they are a herald. And, oh my gosh. Meaning, the gathered corporate people of God is the voice. We've got way too much individualism in our Christianity. The Bible knows no such thing. We're saved as a group. We're redeemed as a group. Which is why the New Testament, New Testament teaching on, on the church is essential. Because there's the universal church and there's the local church. And there's the cell. That's the small group version. That is manifest in three ways. While the New Testament teaches so clearly that the gathered people of God covenanted together is the church. In Corinthians, when Paul talks about you, the church, holy, it's you, plural, you together, one, right? Pay attention to grammar, it matters. Meaning the corporate voice of the gathered church is the herald. Meaning there is something to be said, not just by individuals, but the whole in what we do. It speaks something. You tracking? Get you up on a high mountain of Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, what are they supposed to say? Behold your God. Look at Him. Remember, the promise is the nations are going to see. So get up on this mountain so everybody can see and tell them, look at God. Look, there He is. He's the one who takes away sin. He's the one who makes a way. He's the one who makes this right. Now remember, John's preaching this about who? Jesus. So what's the church's aim? That together we would proclaim, look at Him! Look at Jesus! He's the one who saves. He's the one who makes the way. Look at Him! Don't look at me, look at Him! He's the one whose word stands forever. And so God's promise is now to be proclaimed by His people to the world. What are they supposed to say? Well, they say, behold your God. And then verse 10 and 11 is the attributes that they need to look at. Look at him. Look at Jesus. Well, what is he? Verse 10. He's mighty. Behold, the Lord comes with might. We have a tendency to see Jesus first coming as not mighty. No, it's mighty. Somehow, the Lord God pulled off Mary... Having a baby, not having a husband. That's mighty. Right? Somehow God got them out from under the rule in Jerusalem at the time to protect them from the slaughter of the innocents by sending them to Egypt. That's mighty. Somehow He got them back out of Egypt, back to home. That's mighty. Somehow, somehow, someway... He died in my place for my sin and rose to provide salvation for all who will believe. That's mighty. And he ascended to heaven at the Father's right hand where he rules now. That's mighty. And so what we see here is we're asking people to look at this mighty God. We see verse 10. He rules. His arm rules for him. Jesus has never laid down the scepter of his rule. Just because they don't... Eight pound, six ounce baby Jesus with golden fleece diapers is in a manger. Doesn't mean he stopped ruling the world. He has come to identify with what it's like to be one of the creatures. Hebrews 2 and 3. So that he's a merciful and faithful high priest for those he saves. He rules. We're telling the world, look at him. Look at Jesus. He's mighty. He rules. He rewards. Verse 10. Behold, his reward is with him. He rewards. Verse 10, He gives back. That's what recompense means. He gives back. His recompense is before Him. Jesus gives back. He makes things right. You remember what the prophet Joel said? The Lord is able to restore what the locusts have eaten. If you've given up anything of value in this world for the kingdom, Jesus is bringing it back. He promised reward in the kingdom. He didn't promise reward now. He promised reward in the kingdom. What the locusts have eaten, what sin has taken up that's good for you, Jesus will give it back on that day. His recompense comes with it. And it is no sin to live for that. 
Jesus taught us to live for that. Don't lay up treasure here. Lay it over there. There's a reward there. There's recompense there. And, and he's saying, you my people, point to that. He tends us like a good shepherd, verse 11. He'll tend his flock like a shepherd. Psalm 23. He gathers us to his protection. He will gather his lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And he leads us gently, verse 11. And he leads gently those who are with young. Promise is to be proclaimed by his people. That's what Isaiah is telling them to do. You need to tell this story. So what are we supposed to do with this? Here are applications. Number one, first, Three Rivers Church, take comfort that your sin is pardoned through faith in Jesus. Just start by taking comfort that your sin's pardoned. I think the reality for most of us is, at least maybe not for you, it is for me. When I roll out of bed every day, in the first ten minutes I stumble my spiritual toe and fall all over myself. I need to be reminded of the good news. I need to be reminded that my sin's pardoned. Because check this out. Um, maybe for you. Uh, I'm not perfect. <laughs> right? And uh, I, I've just stopped counting times per day that I'm going to fail my wife, fail my kids, fail you, fail the world, fail myself. And often you wake up with guilt. And often you wake up with all these things sitting on you. And you're reminded of Zechariah the prophet chapter 3. Where Satan stands to accuse. And the accuser of the people of God is accusing you and beating you up. And what we have to not just remember. I'm a sinner. We have to also remember that in Christ I'm pardoned. I'm pardoned. Sin's paid for. So start by remembering that our sin has been pardoned. That what happened in Bethlehem and then at the cross and in his resurrection and ascension has paid for our sin. Which is why Isaiah can say, speak tenderly and comforting to my people. Iniquity's pardoned. I got it. Start there. Number two. We need to then have confidence that God is for us. And he loves us and he doesn't just tolerate us. Because the next error to not believing the gospel applied to my sin is that, okay, okay, angry God, happy Jesus, Jesus dies to make angry God tolerate me. That's anti-gospel. It's anti-good news. Because God's not the angry God angry at his people and Jesus placates him. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God, equal with the Father. Jesus and His death, burial, and resurrection is the Father's idea. It's God's idea that Jesus would pay for the sins of His people. This is why Jesus will tell them in John 14, 15, and 16, particularly in verse 15, He said, I'm not going to say to you that I'll ask the Father for you because He Himself loves you and will come to you. Jesus isn't just the mediator between us and angry God. God loves His people. The Father loves His people. And we need to have confidence that He not just loves me and tolerates me, but He's for me. And the fact that Jesus came to identify with sinners is evidence that God's for us, which is why Hebrews will tell us He's a merciful and faithful high priest. He gets it. He's for you, which is how He mediates for you. He understands. So that when we come and we pray, it's not like, hmm, 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 but it's, I get it. Yes, I know. And he gently holds us and cares for us. John Calvin said, no one will ever reverence God, but he who is confident that God is favorable toward him. God, no one will ever reverence God. But he who is confident that God is favorable toward him. Knowing that is one of the things that will generate a reverence and awe and worship. It'll spurn holiness. There's nothing like realizing he not just tolerates me, he loves me and is for me, which will make you go, 
that sin really tastes bad. Why do I keep eating it? That's dumb. This tastes good. It's joy in Christ that defeats sin, not merely a hatred of sin. It's running toward what tastes better. Right? It just is. Number three, we experience the personal and present salvation of God. We experience the personal and present salvation of God. We receive pardon by faith. We repent. We produce the actions of repentance. And when we walk with Christ in faith, we receive the experience of His present and His personal ministry in going before and making it happen and making it work. Listen, there's no promise in the Bible that Jesus will go before us and knock down mountains to our agendas. It's not there. There is the promise that He will knock down mountains and fill valleys when we're on His agenda. And so our goal is to experience this personal and present salvation of God that we have in His favor toward us as we walk with Him on His way. Doing His mission Walking up that mountain to be a herald of good news to look at our Jesus. If that's our end, we have this personal present experience of Him doing that for us. No promise it will be easy, just that He will do it. I don't know if you've noticed, knocking down mountains is work. Jesus will just do the work. And when I get that figured out, I'll be less stressed. To just, this is not, it's not, um, it's not an invitation to be lazy in the kingdom. It's an invitation to rest in the labor. To rest in the labor. The labor doesn't overwhelm because Jesus is making the labor happen. Number four, we prepare then, we prepare for the present slash future restoration of God. One of the beautiful things of this passage is Isaiah's looking forward. And then the New Testament authors preach this passage also as a present reality, but also looking forward. Which is why Paul will pick up on things like Colossians 1, 18 to 20, that tells us now that, that Christ has come, He's established His kingdom, all things are now being regenerated, made new through Him and by Him for His purposes, and they're being brought back under His rule. So now... We prepare for, in our actions, the present reality and the future restoration of God. Listen, this is what gives meaning to your work. Is the kingdom is here. Jesus' rule has come and He is actively now bringing all things back under His rule. You hear this a lot here because KDSC, kingdom, is big for us. It's part of our DNA is understanding the rule of Christ now. Now. Right now. Which is why your vocation is holy now. It's holy now. And we prepare for the present slash future restoration of God in everything we do. This also is a discipline I need to continue to learn. That I'm preparing now for the future of when that rule is fully restored. And I get the privilege and honor of bringing all of my production before the king and saying, Jesus, this is what I've done. And get to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You get to Revelation 21 and what's happening. In the restored kingdom, the nations are bringing all their stuff in and laying them before the king. I said, man, that's pretty cool. So you know what you're doing now when you're practicing work? You're practicing for the future kingdom when you'll be able to do that without sin. And no evil to hinder production. And you'll bring that harvest of whatever it is before the Lord and say, Jesus, look. And he'll go, good job. Awesome. And our worship. Isn't that rich? So we're preparing now. The oldest been working at Truett's Chick-fil-A this week, learning, man, he got a job. Praise God. I'm only going to take half. It's good. <laughs> right? And so it's not wasted time. Learning the discipline of working in that place is not wasted time. It's present preparation for the future restoration of Christ. We're going to eat in the kingdom. Somebody got to cook it. Make it good. Learn it now. Right? And so we prepare. Just In other words, the gospel doesn't just save us from hell. It also gives meaning to the current labor. 
Number five application, we rest in the certainty that God's promise to save and love and care for us is a certainty. This is that whole Psalm 34, don't fret. Rest in the Lord, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, right? And resting in Him even though you're physically engaged. That's a discipline. Once somebody figures that out, if you'll write the book, I'll be the first person to buy it. But that's the call. As you're engaged, rest. So we all strive it. I hadn't got it figured out. I might write the book before you. And if you'll buy it from me, I'll appreciate it. Right? But we're striving. We're striving to walk in Christ. Because that's the promise. And then finally, finally, we joyously invite the world to be disciples of Jesus with us. We joyously invite the world to be disciples of Jesus with us. Remember I said this a few weeks ago. Our, one of our greatest challenges in the West is we just don't disciple people. We don't, we don't make disciples. I'm not going to ask us to raise our hands on who's discipled somebody into the faith this week, this year. Past five years. You know what I'm saying? Because we've, I, don't know, I, don't know, I don't know how we've jacked the gospel up that it's not a joyous invitation to join Jesus. This great God that we're saying, look at, look at him. He's awesome. Because the Bible presents Jesus as worth following. Doesn't it? And it's almost as if we invite people to Jesus and they quit like it's not, he's not worth, it's kind of like this thing now. And it's just like this laborious and that's not what the Bible presents. It presents this joyous journey with the king of the universe that says, invite the world to look at that. That's, he is, follow him. He's worthy. And so there has to be something that happens as us as disciples that there is a joy generated in this beautiful truth of what He's done for us that, that now emanates out of us to those around us because we're Zion, herald of good news. We're up on this high mountain saying, look at God, look at Jesus. And so there has to be this joyous invitation to the world to be disciples of Jesus with us. Our delight and great joy comes to its satisfying pinnacle as we express it in the joyous invitation to the world to join us in our joy. I, I wrote that down and had to like, I have to say that because I don't think I can say that without reading it. Our delight and great joy comes to its satisfying pinnacle. I'm totally, I'm, this is inspired by C.S. Lewis and I'm going to read you C.S. Lewis, the end, where I'm bringing this from. Our delight and great joy comes to its satisfying pinnacle. As we express it in the joyous invitation to the world to join us in our joy. Here's how Lewis says it. And this is taken uh, from reflection on the Psalms. There's a footnote. You can see it on the blog. You can go to the page number if you got the book. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players Praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, go dogs, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, weird person, even sometimes politicians and scholars. Just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value... So they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? If we delight to praise what we enjoy, because the praise not... I'm sorry, let me... I think... Let me, I messed up. I dyslexic that. Because I am. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy... Because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is an appointed consummation. In other words, the joy has its consummation and ending in the invitation for people to join us in our joy. And Lewis's point, that's the invitation to Jesus. We haven't fully expressed joy until it has consummated in inviting someone to join us in the joy. Listen, 
Singing a song happily isn't the consummation of joy. Which is why after you do it, you may feel empty. It's because that's where it's not intended to end. It is fully satisfied when we invite somebody to join us in it. Which is why that passage ends in verse 9 to 11. Get up on the high mountain people of God and say to the nations, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. So you know what? I'm convinced we won't taste church success in the West until we become a bunch of people screaming, come look at Jesus with me. And find your delight right there. There's your gospel invitation. Try that. And can I just say this practically? When you show up here, try at least faking it till you make it. And, and, and if you really love Jesus, you ain't got to fake it. There is something about sometimes walking in here, we get heavy. Because we're encumbered by a thousand other things other than what counts. Leave it and behold our great God. Would you invite people to do that? Jesus loves to save sinners. He loves to save sinners. Look at us. Invite some more to come enjoy Him with you. Teach Him how to follow Jesus. Dirt simple. Let's pray. And then let's begin the journey of enjoyment and worship. Father, we pray that You would do some great things just even in this time. And that You would pull off our enjoyment to Jesus this Christmas season. And it wouldn't be hindered by inferior things. Uh, I need that. And pray You would pull it off. Lord, I ask that you would even now go before um, before we sing, even in this moment, Holy Spirit, and do that work of um, counseling, helping, giving instruction, leading, and make a way for joy. Lord, I ask that in some way this morning you've let us glimpse at you to behold you, to see you, to look at you, and to enjoy you. And pray that you would generate great things in us as a result of that repentance, forgiveness for others, recognition of what you've done for us, mission, getting on task, getting after those things. So Lord, all the application I can't make because I don't know every heart, Holy Spirit, I pray you would make cause your word to be effective but even right now in the moment help us to enjoy you in worship and give us a voice upon the high mountain to invite others to do it